Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. My home is not on this earth, not in this world. On Saturday 16th of June, Dave Horsfall taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions, where Dave took us through 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Dave is the Associate Director of Leeds School of Theology. Let's take a listen to the session. Good morning, everyone. Am I coming through the speakers all right? Yeah. Great. Well... It's great to be with you guys this morning. I drove over from uh, Leeds. It rained. I don't think I've ever driven over the M62 towards Manchester and it not rain. Uh, somebody said I have. It can happen. Miracles. Oh, I like that. So it didn't rain, but it, maybe it snowed. There was some kind of precipitation. Uh, it's great to be with you guys this morning. It's great to see so many people taking a Saturday morning to come and delve into Scripture, go deeper with God. I think that's a great sign of, of your spiritual health, the spiritual health in your church. So I'm really encouraged there are so many people here this morning. That's great. Um, as Andy said, we are, we're going through six or four or three uh, books of the Old Testament, depending on how you split them up. Um, 163 chapters. So I've, I've got about like 8.3 seconds on each chapter, which is a, just a little bit mad. Uh, just to introduce myself uh, a little bit, uh, I, I love Jesus. I think the story of scripture and the story of God is, uh, is, is fascinating. And, and how that engages with our culture and our world, uh, I just think is such a stimulating conversation uh, I spend a lot of my time, I'm a part-time student, so I spend a lot of my time reading and studying around this, and I teach, as Andy said, it's something called Lee School of Theology, so I, I kind of have my perfect job. I get to read books and then tell people what I read, and then read some more books and tell some more people what I read. Um, and I love listening, I love reading, I love learning, I love studying, and so normally I'm sat in your seat, uh, and enjoying somebody teaching me and so I hope uh, what I bring to you this morning uh, stimulates you, gets you thinking, gets you into scripture, kind of helps unpack it a little bit more and also this, the session after coffee, that, that story of the presence of God, it's like how, do you, how do you do a session on the presence of God? Uh, especially if you've only got an hour, but I'm really looking forward to doing that session as well. Um, I'm one of the elders at a church in Leeds called Mosaic Church, uh, run by a guy called uh, Matt Hatcher, you might have heard of. I think he's come over and spoken to you guys a few times. Tim's nodding. Nobody else is. Tim was there. Um, I'm married to an amazing woman called Rianne and father to two girls, Sophie and Annabelle, who are four and two, so I've got a morning off. So this, this is great uh, for me. So uh, I, hope, yeah, I hope I see you really well. If I'm right, your journey in Scripture, you've got up to Ruth. Is that right? So you've done Judges. That wasn't good, was it? Judges, not, not a great... It's well taught. I'm not saying it wasn't well taught. It's just not a, not a, great, not a great point. 
just slam the previous teachers. <laughs> not, a, not a great point for the people of Israel. And, um, and we're now going to go through Samuel, Kings and Chronicles. And it doesn't get much better for the people of God. The people of God keep turning away from Yahweh. They keep disobeying. They keep worshipping false idols. They keep getting defeated in battle. And in Judges, God keeps responding to them. He raises up Judges to rescue them, to to bring them out of those places of defeat and bring them back to uh, a place of obedience. And so you get this cycle of, of sin and judgment and repentance and God raising up a judge. And then we get to the beginning of Samuel. And what we see is Israel is fed up of that pattern as everybody is by the time you've got to the end of Judges. They're fed up with the pattern, but what do they want at the beginning of the book of Samuel? They want a king. What's the big problem with them wanting a king? They have one. They have one, and who is their king? God. It feels like they've forgotten that. They show that their desire for a human king is a desire to be like all the other nations... And reject Yahweh as their king. And these six books basically tell that story. Which king are they going to choose? Yahweh or a human king? Now, you will see on your notes, I've given you a lot of notes. The reason I've given you a lot of notes is so that you have a resource to take away. So when you're reading these books in the future, you can dip back in. You can try and figure out which part of the story that we're in. You can read all of those notes this morning as I speak if you want to. You can read none of those notes. I really don't mind. You can scribble on them. You can keep them pristine. Uh, Whatever works for you. You can follow along in your Bibles. I really don't mind how you uh, engage. I also want you to ask questions as we go. I'm really... uh, will engage much better if you stop me ask for a clarification stick your hand up ask a question as we go through but i just i wanted to give you those notes so you can hold in your mind this this big picture of which god is israel going to serve which god uh, are they going to obey are they going to obey yahweh their one true god or are they going to obey the false gods of other nations and that's a question we ask in our lives and our churches who do, we, who do we obey? Who do we submit to? And so uh, Andy prayed for us, but I just want to pray that as we go through this morning session, God will be speaking to us about what obedience in our life looks like. As we go through this story and we see how the people fail and don't obey, we would be listening to the Spirit and hearing his voice speaking to us for our lives. So let me just pray again. Holy Spirit, we... We are so dependent upon hearing your voice and we're so dependent upon you empowering us and animating us for life. Lord, we, pr- we just pray that in this space, in this time that we are giving over to being with you in your word, that you would come and bring these words to life. I pray you'd bring them to bear on our, on our day-to-day situations, those things that we know we're carrying, you know we're carrying. I just pray that as we go through these scriptures, you would be speaking in your still, small voice into those situations, calling us back to obedience, calling us back to proper worship, calling us back to having you, Yahweh, as our king. Please help us in that, Lord. We, we know our hearts wander too quickly, too easily. Please bring them back and unite them to yours once again, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. So um, if you go to slide two, I've given you a bit of a history, what's going on in the background, the kind of wider geography. And Israel exists, but it doesn't exist on its own. Israel exists surrounded by big nations, powerful nations. And Israel, by contrast, is, is a teeny weeny little nation. And God chose Israel not because it was strong and powerful, but because it was small. Because it was the fewest of all people, it says in Deuteronomy 7.7. And he does this so that through trusting Yahweh, Israel might display Yahweh's power and his faithfulness to his people, to the world. That their success would not be due to their worldly strength, but be due to Yahweh and who he is. And that's the central theme of these books. Will the people of God trust Yahweh and display to the nations that by trusting Yahweh, he is able to bring success, he is able to bring prosperity, or will they act exactly like the other nations act? Uh, I've also given you a map. I had a look, quick look at the map. It's quite small, but there are colours on the map, so go with the colours. Given you a map of this kind of ancient Near Eastern world, uh, slide number three on your handouts. Um, Jerusalem is a tiny dot kind of close to the centre, but what you see is Jerusalem is, is part of this fertile crescent that sweeps across kind of the, uh, the ancient Near East, which means this area is good for farming, it's good for growing civilizations, and if you're growing a, a big civilization, you become powerful. And if you become powerful, you're looking at your neighbours and think, I quite like that bit of land as well as my bit of land. And so this place is kind of a melting pot for civilizations and powerful empires to emerge. And what we see is behind the story of Samuel through to the end of Chronicles is the story of these powerful and powerful nations emerging in the background and how does Israel interact with them. The first nation that we meet are the Assyrians. The Assyrians are a, a big nation. They're a powerful nation. They're not a great nation. They're kind of, they're a bit mean. They're a bit nasty, but they're huge. And what we see is they appear in the background of the story as we go through uh, towards the end of uh, Kings, and they appear in the background, and then they come and decimate 10 of the northern tribes of Israel in 722, annexing, annexing them, taking them into Samaria. Um, the next empire is the Babylonian Empire. So you get the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians come along, and the Babylonians sweep away the Assyrians, and they come and sweep away the two southern tribes in Jerusalem as well. And lastly, you get the Persian Empire. So you get the Assyrians, you get the Babylonians, then you get the Persians. They rise up, and they sweep away the Babylonians, but they also allow a remnant to return to Jerusalem. That's the, that's the backdrop. That's what's happening in, in the world of the ancient Near Eastern person and the Israelite person. Israel, this fairly small nation, is competing against the local tribes, the Philistines, uh, they're constantly in battle, kind of in skirmishes, but then they're facing these enormous megapowers, superpowers, just, just beyond their territory, always threatening to just come in and sweep in and take them away, which means war and conflicts and land grabs and peace treaties and bargains and power struggles, that's the world of these these books. Israel is competing for survival against these other nations. And Yahweh says, you'll survive and you'll thrive and you'll prosper if you trust me. And I want to I add kind of the human element to the people of Israel. It's one thing 
trusting God for finances or trusting God for a job. It's another thing, trusting God for the survival of your nation when there's this enormous army that just sits on your doorstep, rubbing its hands. And you're always like, you don't need a king. You just trust me. You know, when we go into battle, I'm going to ask you to do some weird things that look like weakness, but you'll win in the end. It's a huge challenge for the people of Israel to trust Yahweh because Yahweh will display his power in some of the most bizarre ways in order to show these bigger nations that it's not through chariots and wealth and armies that they truly have success, but it's through trusting in Yahweh. So that's the human element. It's, it's quite easy to look at these kings and these people and be like, oh, they're idiots. They just keep disobeying. I want to add that context of it's hard to obey when somebody's going to come in the sweeping, kill you, your family, your kids. And so just to add that as a bit of context in the background. But one of the best ways to describe these books is this is the tale of two kings. Will Yahweh be the king or will it be the human kings? God is the one who is truly king of his people. Uh, And we see that this is a story of Israel resisting or struggling to have Yahweh as their king. They desire a human king. They want to be like the other nations, which you can can sympathize with. If they've got a big army, you're like, "I, I want a big army. They've got a good king. I want a good king. I want a king that I can see that's going to take me into battle. But Yahweh is, keeps saying, no, I'm your king. I'm, look what I did in Egypt. Look what I did at the Exodus. Look how I saved you when Egypt had the big army and you were weak and small, but I brought you out. That's, that's Yahweh. And that's the, the king that they're meant to serve. But they wrestle. They wrestle with Yahweh. And again, just to try and bring it home to us, that's our situation as well. We wrestle to submit ourselves to God. We wrestle to have him as our king rather than other things, don't we? We wrestle to trust that he's going to come through rather than trying to solve the situation ourselves or rather than trying to solve uh, it through other means. And so we find ourselves in this story time and time and time again. Every time God calls his people to trust him, we find ourselves in that story. We do, do we trust? Do we put Yahweh first like the people are meant to? So that's some of the kind of key themes of those, the, the major books. We are, we are going to go through these six, three or four books rapidly. And so you'll need to keep up with me. Please ask me to stop and slow down if I'm going too fast. But we'll have to go at a pace to cover everything that's in there. So we're going to start in Samuel. And there are uh, three key themes that you see coming out of Samuel. You see the rise of the monarchy. You see the beginning of the kings of Israel. We also see the beginning of the prophets. We've not really had many prophets or prophetic roles so far, uh, but we start to see the the rise of the prophets, and we see Samuel and Nathan as the kind of two major prophets, and they come in, and they're going to warn the people about impending danger. They're going to promise blessing from God, but most of all, they are going to insist upon obedience to Yahweh and denounce disobedience. And we also see this interplay between God and human interaction. The importance of human choices feature really prominently in Samuel, and they truly affect how the future of Israel is going to look. So our our decisions, the decisions of the people of Israel matter. Uh, If you were to quickly split this book up, the first seven chapters is about Samuel's rise and Eli's decline and the journey of the ark, part one. 8 to 15 is Saul becoming king and the first part of Saul's reign. And then 16 through 31 is David's rise and Saul's demise. 
into 2 Samuel. The first seven chapters is David becoming king and the journey of the ark, part two. Uh, Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel 8 to 20 is David as king, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And then 21 to 24, I've just called conclusion because it's kind of really messy and there isn't really a point to it, except we'll see there is a point, but conclusion is the best way of describing it. Um, so let's do a quick scamper through. Uh, as I said, I'll go at a pace, but stop any questions. Um, Samuel comes right after the book of Judges, and the cycle that we see in the book of Judges seems like it's going to happen again. Israel falls into sin, which is represented by Eli's two sons. Uh, the NIV, I think, translates them as scoundrels, which is a great word, who have no regard for Yahweh. And so Samuel is called by Yahweh. In chapter 3, you get the the famous story of uh, the Lord calling Samuel, Samuel. And he keeps running to Eli, thinking it's Eli. But it's the Lord calling him. And he's calling him to to pronounce judgment on Eli and his sons. And in chapter 4, we see the whole nation comes under judgment because they go to war against the Philistines. And they take the ark of God with them because they think that by having the ark of God with them, They'll win the battle, but they lose. The Philistines defeat them, and the Ark of God is captured, and it's taken away. Yahweh doesn't fight for them, and they lose his presence. And so this immediately raises the question, is is Yahweh not the God that they thought he was? Is he a weaker God? And then we're told the amusing story in chapter 5, that the Philistines take the Ark, and they put it in their temple, the Temple of Dagon, and they go to sleep. And in the morning they wake up and, and the, the idol to Dagon is bowed down before the ark. So they pick him up and they put him back in his place. If you have to pick a god up and put it back, it's not a good god. <laughs> and they, they go to sleep again. And then the next day, Dagon is not only fallen down in front of the ark, but his hands and his head have been chopped off. He's been decapitated. The, the message is, no, no, Yahweh is still the God above all other gods. He is the one to whom glory is owed. But he's also showing, I'm standing in judgment over Israel. You, Israel, you cannot treat me like a genie in a bottle that you bring out to get what you want in a battle and then put me away again. You're meant to walk in obedience to me. And so in chapter 6, the ark is returned to Israel by the Philistines, but the ark's put in a place called Kiriath-Jerim, which is right on the edge of the territory. It's symbolic of the, the people and Yahweh's relationship not being great. So they put him, they put Yahweh over here on the edge, and they're kind of retreat, because they're like, we want you to be here, but we're not sure we're okay with you. Um, we don't quite know how to interact with you. So we'll, we'll pop you over there for now. And we'll just kind of carry on doing what we're doing. It's great that you're back. But we don't really want you at the centre of what's going on. So far, so similar to Judges. There's the sin and there's judgment. And then in chapter 7, we see the people repenting. And, then in, and God raises up a new judge. The last judge, Samuel. And then Israel is victorious in battle again. And so we've gone through the whole cycle of Judges, but there's a difference. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Samuel, it strikes a new tone. So if you skipped out of the book of Ruth and went from the end of Judges into the beginning of Samuel, and you you see Elkanah's piety in chapter 1, Hannah's prayer in chapter 2, you notice there's a deeper yearning for Yahweh in those two chapters than it seems like there has been in the whole of the book of Judges. 
There's a, a contrast that's set forward in these seven chapters that sets up the rest of the book. And it's the difference between faithful Israel who are yearning for Yahweh, unfaithful Israel who don't really care about Yahweh unless he's winning battles. It's the, it's the contrast between Eli and Samuel, the contrast between, uh, which will become between Saul and David. Will the people follow the path of faithfulness or not? And then in chapter 8, Samuel gets old and his sons succeed him, but they are disobedient. So this problem that the judge never has a lasting influence carries on. And now we see that the people want a king. They recognise the system of judges doesn't work, but their solution in chapter 8 verse 5 says, give us a king like the other nations have. And we see later in chapter 12, the, the reason Israel wanted a king is so that they might have victory in battle against the other nations. Their desire for victory is not bad, but their means by which they are to attain victory shows that they don't trust Yahweh's going to bring it. They think they need a king like the other nations. And Yahweh has always asked his people, be distinct Stand out from the other nations. Don't blur in. You're you're going to be different because you're going to trust me rather than do it by their means. And what we see is Yahweh sees their request for a king as a symbol of their rebellion against him. And he warns them through Samuel that if you have a king, he's going to oppress you. He's going to cruelly oppress you. It's a bad choice, but the people refuse to listen. They don't care. They want a king. They're a a stubborn people, and so God grants their requests. He gives them over to their desires. He lets them go their own way. This is is God's judgment on his people. This is his wrath, as it were, allowing them to have what they desire most, which is, in this point, a king. Really similar, if you think of the beginning of Romans chapter 1, really similar to how God's wrath outworks there. He gives us over to our desires, we say, I really, really want this. And he's like, it's not good for you. He's like, I don't care. I want it anyway. He's like, okay, well, you, you have it, but you have to live with the consequences of your decisions. And that's what we see is going to happen to his people. He says, you really want a king. It's not a good decision. But if you really want a king, you'll have to live with the consequences of having a human king. And in chapter 9, we see that Saul is chosen as king. And he's, he's handsome and he's tall. Um, But he's fickle and he's weak. Saul's immediate response to be called to be king is to hide. So he hides the information from his uncle. And when the time comes for Saul to be appointed, they're like, where is he? Where's he gone? And people are looking around and they're trying to find out where he is. And they go into the camels and the luggage and looking in the bags. And then they're like, oh, he's here. That's That's not a great way to... Like, if, if the queen dies, it's like, where's William? Oh, he's, you know, he's in the luggage compartment. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I just went for my desire there. <laughs> sorry. When, when the queen dies and Charles abdicates, and then it's William. <laughs> Where is he? He's hiding in the luggage. We see in that moment that Saul is afraid. Saul doesn't really want to be king. The, the idea of being the king initially freaks Saul out. Uh, a nice little contrast. Um, where's Jesus when he can't be found amongst the camels and the luggage on the way back from um, Jerusalem to his hometown? He's in the temple, isn't he? Jesus is preparing to be the king of his people by being in his father's house. 
and praying. So when they're looking for him and he can't be found, he's in, he's in the right place, whereas Saul wasn't. He was just hiding out of fear. And in chapter 13, we see why... Sorry, 11 and 12, Saul, uh, despite that kind of setback, he does start well and he wins uh, victories in battle, which is most often a kind of sign of success of how the king is doing. And Samuel helps the people attribute the glory back to Yahweh. And uh, then Samuel conducts his leaving speech in chapter 12. And he says, Saul is now your leader. He's he's trying to follow Yahweh. You're obedient. Uh, you're, You're successful in battle. Saul's now your king. But even as he does, Samuel reminds them that their request for a king was, was a bad idea. It was mistrusting and it was foolish. And in chapter 13, we see why Samuel and Yahweh have warned that having Saul as king was going to work out badly. Because at the beginning of chapter 13, we start to see the demise of Saul. Saul fails to keep the command to wait for Samuel to make a sacrifice. And so Samuel says the kingdom's going to be torn from torn from Saul and given to one after Yahweh's heart. And it seems like that's like one small mistake, but that mistake is meant to encapsulate Saul's disobedient heart. He, he's going to refuse to follow Yahweh. And what we're going to see over the next kind of 13 to 31 to 18 chapters, Saul becomes increasingly paranoid, angry, feckless, disobedient, reckless. He, he, the power of being king consumes Saul. And it, it's really a sad story of a leader who uh, is just totally consumed by their position, unwilling to let it go. But again, we see this contrast between obedience and disobedience. In 13, we see the demise, start of the demise of Saul. In chapter 14, we get to Jonathan. Jonathan and his armor bearer know or trust that Yahweh is with them. And so just the two of them, they go and rout this whole Philistine outpost. And so Saul is contrasted with Jonathan. And we're meant to be reading it going, Jonathan would have been a better king. I wish we'd skipped Saul and gone to somebody who trusts Yahweh is with them. And then in chapter 15, you get this kind of uh, horrendous and weird story at the same time. Uh, Yahweh instructs uh, Saul to go and destroy the Amalekites and destroy them completely. Um, And he goes into battle and he destroys them mostly, except for the sheep and some other things. And so Samuel comes to Saul and says, did you destroy the Amalekites completely? Oh, yes, says Saul. What's that? Shoo, nothing. And so Samuel's like, Why are there sheep here? Ah, yeah, the sheep. Oh, that was the people's idea, says Saul. It wasn't my idea, it was the people's idea. And someone's like, "Uh, but you're the leader of the people. If you tell them what to do, yeah, but we'll give them to God. We'll sacrifice them to Yahweh. That's a good idea, isn't it? And you see that Saul is this weak leader. He sees He's an opportunistic leader. He, he goes to kill the Amalekites, but he's like, hey, these, these sheep look pretty good, actually. I know God said to destroy them, but let's, let's bring them back. Let's, let's not do what Yahweh wants to do. I, I, I think we could use them. And then when he's challenged, he squirms and he tries to weave and duck his and dive his way out of uh, the blame being on him. And what we see at the end of 15 is uh, Samuel says, that's it. That's it, Saul. 
it, the kingdom's gone from you. Saul remains king for quite a long time, but Samuel says, no, 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 the, you, you don't trust Yahweh. You can't lead the people. And so uh, Saul is rejected. And what's fascinating is Saul, Yahweh's rejected king, and Samuel, Yahweh's messenger, never meet again in the rest of the story. And that's meant to be symbolic of the king and Yahweh being separated from one another. They don't talk. They're not in relationship with one another anymore because of the disobedience of Saul. Chapter 16, we see a new potential king emerge, and it's David, and he's not like Saul. He, you wouldn't look at him and think he's naturally a good king. He's young, he's small, he's a songwriting shepherd. He's just in Bieber, effectively. <laughs> like, that's kind of what we're looking at here. But there's one difference between David and Saul. David trusts Yahweh. David's heart is more important than than Saul's strength and appearance. And we know this is still so true today. God looks at our hearts more than our external appearances. And then in chapter 17, David meets Goliath. The, The symbol of strength for Israel and the symbol of strength for the Philistines. And the Philistines' strength is a giant of a man, a huge warrior. And the Israelite symbol of strength is this little boy who trusts Yahweh. And David says in chapter 17, verse 37, the Lord saved me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, and he will save me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. And it's symbolic of that moment of this this little boy going to Saul. I can take on the giant because I've taken on a bear and a lion and Yahweh was with me then. And the king of Israel going, off you go, little boy. You go and do your thing. Effectively, Saul's like, you, you go and die. Like, nobody else wants to go and face this Philistine. And in that, you see this, again, two hearts are kind of pictured against one another. Saul's heart is like, I'm, I'm not going to kill him. It's the king's job to fight for the people. He's like, I, I don't want to face Goliath. You, David, you go. You try if you want to. And then chapters 18 to 31 is going to tell us the story of Saul's demise and David's rise. The rejected king and the the new king who's coming into power. And what we see is Saul increasingly views David as his rival. And he becomes increasingly paranoid and violent and freaked out that this person is going to take what he feels is still rightfully his. And everything Saul does fails and everything David does succeeds. Can I just ask a question? Yeah. So with the whole David and Goliath thing, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Goliath was basically saying, look, let's not have the two armies fight. Mm. Just decide this one man, yeah. one man. Is there not a case to say that Saul was actually putting quite a bit of faith in David because he was putting his nation in David's hands? Yes, I think he is putting his nation in David's hands. There's a question over, is that a step of faith? Or not. And I think the narrator is getting us to a point where Saul is entrusting the nation of Israel to a little boy to display Saul is uh, beyond the ability of leading his people. But the little boy is symbolic of I will trust in Yahweh. So I think you. Arguably, you could make the connection that Saul is trusting, that David is trusting in Yahweh. But even if he's doing that, Saul's not trusting in Yahweh. Because if Saul's trusting in Yahweh, he'll go and fight. But he's looking at the boy going, if you've got the faith, okay, you go and do it. I don't have the faith. Or he's looking at it going, you go and die. Either way, I'm like, Saul doesn't come out of it. I don't think Saul's meant to come out of it looking amazing. I, I want to be sympathetic to Saul as much as I can. But David is effectively a small teenager at this point. And I'm like, 
Saul should be the one fighting. But it would be my reading. I'm not saying it's cast iron, but, and it's a great question, so I'm not saying it's cast iron, but that would be my reading of it. It's a great question, though. Um, so we see this uh, 18 to 31, everything Saul does fails, everything David does succeeds. So Saul tries to kill David twice with a spear, but he misses twice. The message, Saul cannot harm the truly anointed one, the king of Israel. He sends David on military campaigns to try and get him killed, but David succeeds and adds to his glory. Saul tries to turn his children against David, but Jonathan covenants himself to David and uh, Michal, uh, Saul's daughter, marries David. So it's, it's really not going very well for Saul at all. Saul ends up driving away all of his skillful warriors, and Saul dies in battle on his own sword. Saul shows how not to be king, how not to follow Yahweh. And uh, there's, a, there's a, a moment at the end of Samuel where you think maybe this will be the point that Saul shows he can turn his life around. 1 Samuel 24 and 26, both times David spares Saul's life, and both times Saul tries to kill David again. Saul just cannot comprehend this idea that he won't remain as king of Israel. We see that really he is most bothered about himself and his power rather than trusting Yahweh. There will be points, I just want to say this as an aside to leaders in the room, there will be points when you read the story of Saul and you'll be on Saul's side and you'll be like, I think Saul's got it right here. And it's not necessarily that it's a bad thing to think that. But when you do think that, I think that's a helpful moment for you to reflect on how how are you doing with the responsibilities you're carrying as a leader. Because Saul's carrying it as as we will carry it in our own strength. And when we resonate with Saul, I think what we're doing is resonating with trying to carry power and responsibility in our own strength. And so he almost can act like a mirror into our own hearts. And... uh, (laughs) having read Saul numerous times and thought Saul's got it right and then had periods of reflection on my own leadership I say that from personal experience and you can more than welcome to ask me more about that over coffee but uh, I just thought I'd throw that one out there Uh, David on the other hand he shows what it's like to obey Yahweh he shows what it's like to put Yahweh first and and to to follow Yahweh to the extent that when when he has this opportunity to kill Saul The man who's tried to kill him a lot, he says, I will not harm the Lord's anointed. David is obedient all the way through. And what we see is at the end of Samuel, David ends up fighting and defeating the Amalekites, which Saul didn't do in 1 Samuel 15. And Saul dies on his own sword in the battlefield. And really, Saul's kingship ends in misery and defeat But at the same time, we're meant to be asking the question, isn't this where this is always going to go because of Israel's rejection of Yahweh? Yes, we have this new potential king in David, and yes, things do seem to be going well, but Saul still stands out as a symbol to Israel that a human king, this is the way they're going to go. Is David going to be a better king is a valid question, but should David even be king is still the underlying question for the people of God at this point. And as we move into Samuel 2, what we see is David does become king and he widens uh, his control. But immediately we see a problem because there's another king who pops up. Ishboth Sheth has been appointed by Abner. 
into this vacuum that Saul creates by dying, we don't have this uh, gentle succession. We don't have this easy transfer of power. What we see is Israel is still fractious. It's still um, frail. Uh, and maybe not frail, but fragile. And so into this power vacuum, you have David, but there's somebody else who's going, I'll be king, you can, you can follow me if you want to. And you get infighting, you get civil war that, or a civil skirmish that begins the end of Second uh, Samuel, uh, begin, starts the beginning of Second Samuel. And we see pointless loss of life. We already know who uh, Yahweh's anointed is, it's David. But because of Saul's poor leadership, because of Saul's poor kingship, the transition isn't smooth. And so Joab, Dave's, uh, David's kind of commander-in-chief, he, he kills Abnar and he kills Isbosheth, uh, the two kind of leaders of this mutiny. But David distances himself from both of those killings. And his message is kind of clear. I don't, I don't want revenge on, on this mutiny. I don't, I, that's not how I want to start my kingship, which seems like a, a valid, uh, valid response and a hopeful response. And then in chapter 5, David is made king of all Israel and he captures Jerusalem and he makes it the capital. But at the same time, chapter 5, verse 13, it says, In Jerusalem, after he came from Hebron, David took more concubines and wives and more sons and daughters were born to David. David's still acting like the kings of the time were acting. He's still using his power, his position, his, his gender to acquire sex and wives and offspring. So even though he started better, there's still too much that makes him look like the other kings of the other nations. Now, in chapters 6 and 7, the ark comes into view once more. The ark of God comes back into view, and it's moving towards Jerusalem, the heart of the kingdom. And it's met with rejoicing from David. It's the scene where he offers sacrifices and he, he dances with abandon uh, before the Lord, which annoys his, his wife. And this suggests that the relationship between Yahweh and the king and Yahweh and the people is about to be healed. Yahweh is going to dwell at the center of the land and the center of his people again. But then in chapter six, we see the death of Uzzah who reaches out and grabs the ark as it falls off the oxen carrying it, and God's holy anger burns against him. And it's a reminder that Yahweh's presence is a holy presence, dwelling in the midst of a disobedient people. And then the ark has this like three-month layover on the way to Jerusalem in the house of Obed-Edom because David fears its presence. So he hears that Uzzah dies, and he's like... Oh, crumbs. We've got it closer. Um, let's stick it in that guy's house for three months and not stick it in the center of Jerusalem just while I figure out how I should think about this. But what happens is the house of Obed-Edom has three months of blessing and prosperity. And David sees this and goes, oh, well, that's, that's quite good, actually. Bring it into Jerusalem. But as it comes into Jerusalem, again, it is, it is almost like a prophetic symbol of Yahweh reminding his people, yes, there is blessing, but the blessing comes from obedience. And if there is disobedience, then there is curses. And so even as the ark comes in and it rests in Jerusalem, there is a call to the people afresh, will you obey now? Will you obey and turn back to Yahweh or not? 
And uh, what we see in chapter 7 is David is enthroned and Yahweh makes a, a covenant with David. God will be with him. David's name will be made great. God will give his people rest. Rest from battle, rest from war. David's descendants will be a nation forever. David is blessed in really similar way to Abraham, who is blessed in chapter 12. Uh, through David, this promise to Abraham becomes a little bit closer to, com- to completion. And so, if you like, this is... We're on a movement towards the completion of the promise. We have a better king than we had in Saul. This seems like it's a good moment. And from chapter 8 in 2 Samuel onwards, we have a a brief glimpse again of a good king. Chapters uh, 8 and 9, David is winning uh, battles. David is a kind king as well. Uh, Chapter 9 tells the story of David being kind to one of Jonathan's sons and looking after him. But then a little bit like Saul, chapter 10, chapter 11, we start to see glimpses of a decline that's going to set in into David's kingship. In chapter 10, David is absent from the battle with the Ammonites. And in chapter 11, David is once again absent. And the narrator notes in 11 verse, chapter 11, verse 1, this is the time when kings go out to battle. But David stays at home. There's a sense again in which Being the king and having the power should be matched with a servant-heartedness, a sense of I will go before the people, I will put myself on the line in battle for them. But David's in the palace. Or he's not sorry, he's not in the palace because he's not been built yet, but he's he's at home chilling. He's at home relaxing, sending people off to war. And it's the classic story that we know so well. David gets bored. He sees a woman bathing and he has her brought to him and he sleeps with her. And I just want to say, I don't think the picture here is of like beautiful consensual sex. It's probably rape. And we don't really get that in the story because at the time that wouldn't have been a thing. But the story of Bathsheba is a horrendous story, really. She's, She's abused. She's taken. Then David sends Uriah, her husband, off basically to be killed in battle. Bathsheba's pregnant with David's child, and that child will die. And just as an aside, Bathsheba's story is almost the, the, uh, a symbol of the offshoots of disobedience. She is a symbol of the consequence of disobedience to God's people. And the narrator doesn't dwell on it for too long. But her kind of moment in the spotlight is a reminder to us that there are other people around the king and they are suffering from the disobedience of the king. And Bathsheba suffers greatly because of David doing as he pleases and acting in disobedience. And his disobedience is confronted by Nathan the prophet in chapter 12. And there are going to be consequences for David's sin. He has shown contempt for for Yahweh. And David's not explicitly rejected as king as Saul was. And David does repent immediately, unlike Saul. But the gravity of David's sin remains. And and it seeps into his family. And eventually it will seep into the nation. It's one of these um, stories where it's like his sin is forgiven. But the consequences of the sin still live on. 
He is able to return into relationship with Yahweh, but the, the destructive power of what he's chosen to do is going to affect, and he has to live with the effect of what, what has happened. Um, and just again, as a little aside, there's, a, there's a, an important story there that we proclaim a message of forgiveness of sins, which is a wonderful message. It's a wonderful message to receive. But we also have to pastorally recognize that a lot of the time in our lives and the lives of others, we're still pastoring them through the consequences of sinful decisions. Forgiveness, unfortunately, doesn't rectify all the, all the bad decisions we may have made in our past. And a lot of our pastoring is helping people realize that sin carries on even after it's been forgiven. The effects of sin carry on even after it's been forgiven. And you see this in the life of David. David's son, Amnon, rapes Tamar. He acts like his father acted. It's told more brutally and um, emotively and then the story of Bathsheba. But what we see is David's sin has affected his sons. And um, David's response is he doesn't punish Amnon. David's moral authority has gone from within his family. And Absalom, one of David's other sons, kills Amnon, or has Amnon killed out of anger, uh, his unjust action. And then David doesn't see Absalom for two years David's basically uncertain, do I reconcile with him or or do I punish him? And what you see is David's family is a mess because of of what David's done with Bathsheba. And then in chapter 15, Absalom seeks to take his father's place as king and David runs off and he refuses to take the ark of God with him. Symbolic of, I I don't want Yahweh's presence with me. Even though he's, he's repented and he's been forgiven, he's like, the idea of the holiness of the ark coming with me in the midst of this turmoil is, is too much for David. And so he, he leaves it. And we, there's a question, has, has Yahweh rejected David? Has David rejected Yahweh? And it doesn't seem to be uh, that severe, but there's a sense in which Yahweh and, and the king are, are not on the same page. And in chapters... Chapters 16 and 17, we see the political maneuverings of David and Absalom. Israel's not united. It is fractious and divisive, and people, especially women, are bearing the cost of uh, this infighting that is happening. It's far from the Davidic kingship that we thought we were going to get when uh, Yahweh made his covenant in chapter 8. Uh, chapter 7, sorry. Um, and Absalom, David's son, is eventually killed in battle. But what it means is David has lost three sons. Nathan confronted David and said, you're going to lose three sons. And, and that's exactly what happens. And Israel has fallen into civil war. David hasn't di- disobeyed quite as Saul did, but he has fallen from grace quite extensively. And the fallout is extensive. Uh, David returns as king, but it's not, an easy, it's not an easy kingship anymore. Joab, his commander-in-chief, seems like he's suddenly got free reign to basically kill anybody that he chooses. Um, I'm trying to think of an example. This is a little bit like uh, Mike Pence as vice president, just going around and sacking staff, uh, and Donald Trump knowing nothing about it, which may be the case, I'm not really sure, but there'd be a sense in which you'd be like, where's Trump's authority if Mike Pence is just going off and doing whatever he wants? And this seems to be what's happening with Joab. He just goes around and says, I'm going to kill this person and this person, and David doesn't seem to do much about it. Job is not submitted to David. And there's no mention of Yahweh's involvement in chapters 19 and 20, unlike during David's rise to power. David still has a lineage. He still has a son who will become king after him. But the legitimacy of David's reign, 
They seeped away quite dramatically. And the conclusion of 2 Samuel, which I described as a conclusion earlier, as not really having a point, it does have a point. And the point is it gives you good and bad stories about David. And it's meant to stand there as a symbol of David's kingship. There's been good, much good, but there's been much bad as well. And the, the end of 2 Samuel is David, good and bad, the good and bad, the ugly, is, is laid out before us. And we're left with the question, Saul's kingship wasn't a blessing. Was David's? Well, in some regards, yes, because of the covenant Yahweh made with David and the promise given to David. But in many regards, no. And Israel is left in a, in a fragile place at the end of David's kingship, as it was at the end of Saul's kingship as well. Israel is left longing still for an obedient king. And now a king who will come from the line of David, because that's the the, the covenant Yahweh's made with his people, one from David's line, will rule forever. So there is a hope. A Davidic king will come and he will be obedient and he will follow Yahweh faithfully. And you think it's going to be Solomon. Beginning of kings, you think Solomon is the obedient one who is coming and he is the one who his dynasty will reign forever. But we quickly see that's not going to be the case. Um, if you go to slide 17, I've given you a map of the kingdoms during David's and Solomon's and Saul's reign. And what you see is there's an increase in territory from Saul, from Saul to David to Solomon. The, the, the kind of territory of, uh, of Israel expands. And with Solomon, you have the biggest kingdom and the most united kingdom at the beginning. And what you see is for the first 10 chapters of Kings... It's great. We actually have Israel united. We have Israel as it, at its biggest point, most likely. Tim. Sorry, before you go into Kings, I just wanted to ask you a question. Yeah, go for it. Uh, they have lots of wives. They do. Which uh, is always a strange... So it seems that... And I just want to know what you think. It seems that God will hit a point with David and Bathsheba. Yeah. And he's like, okay, that's, that's not good, that's enough. Mm. But then, but you look at... David, yeah, yeah. And Solomon, they've got a lot of wives and concubines. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. is clearly breaking one of the things yeah. wrong. Yeah, yeah. So you can't. Why is that? How, how has God been like, okay, 5,000 wives? Well, I'm going to read all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I've reached a point with that thing. Yeah. And now I'm angry. How does that work? That's a great question. I, I'll, give you, I'll give you my opinion, but it's an, an opinion of, of many. And it's an opinion that's informed by something I heard Andrew Wilson do a few years ago, which I thought was great. Have you seen the Mitchell and Webb sketch show where they're the, uh, they're the Nazi commandants in a bunker and they're having a conversation with one another? And they're basically having a conversation about... Um, the, the one guy looks to the one and he goes, why, why, have we got, why, have we got, like, why have we got skulls on our caps? Why, why the symbol of a skull? And the other guy's like, oh, I don't really know. And he's like, yeah, but skulls, it, ah, it's not a great picture, is it? It's kind of like death and evil. And the other guy's like, yeah, maybe. And the other guy goes, are we the bad guys in this war? And there's a little bit of a sense of when you read from uh, Genesis right through to the end of the histories, there's a sense in which it's always like, are, are Israel the good guys or the bad guys? Are they doing the right things or are they doing the wrong things? And you don't have this underlying commentary of they did this. Oh, by the way, that's a, that was a bad thing. Or they did this. Oh, phew, that was a good thing. You don't have that because it's, you're meant to know when they're doing good and bad things. So when it says 
David takes Bathsheba, when it says he has multiple other wives, you're meant to be reading it going, he shouldn't, he shouldn't have those wives. So almost you're, you're meant to have the, not quite the role of Yahweh, but you're meant to have the commentary of Yahweh in the back of your mind of, if he has other wives, then that breaks the command that Yahweh's already given. And, and the narrator doesn't make it explicit, but we're, we're meant to read that going, that, that's not a good thing. And I think it's a little bit like if you're, somebody's having a conversation with you and they say, I, I don't know, I can't think of a, uh, an example that I could share and it'd be recorded. But uh, <laughs> they, they say something and in the back of your mind, you're like, I, I, I don't think you should be doing that. I, I think that's a bad idea. When you read most of Samuel Kings and Chronicles, you're like, oh, I, I, don't, I don't think you should be doing that. I, I think that's a bad thing. Um, and sometimes it makes it really explicit. And there are points where, and we'll see this in Kings, there are points where Yahweh will go, you're going into exile now because the wives, the idolatry, and he kind of looks back and he goes, all of that, all of that stuff which I, ha- which I haven't, the narrator hasn't explicitly commented on, suddenly it's like, it's all of that that means you're going into exile. And so I, I, some of it's the style of writing, but some of it's also the knowledge of the reader. And so we, we tend to read it that Yahweh's kind of okay with everything. And on the whole, Yahweh's not okay with most of what's going on. But he's showing his faithfulness to the people rather than just destroying them. And they're showing their unfaithfulness, which is why I kept coming back to whether it be faithful or unfaithful. And what you see is they're just, they're nearly always unfaithful most of the time, would be my reading of it. So I have a very pessimistic anthropology. So most of the time when I'm reading scripture, I'm like, the human's doing a dumb thing rather than the human's doing a good thing. So you get to Jesus, and then I'm like, he's always doing a good thing. But that's, that would be how I would most of the time be reading it. What yeah. I mean that it's an unconditional covenant he's got with them? No. Is it an unconditional covenant? No, I don't think so, because they end up in exile. Yeah, but I mean, you know, when you're saying he does know, so, I mean, judgment will come. Yes. Even now, we think we're getting away with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eventually, yes, in whatever way, and I think you, you I get a bit with the covenant, yeah, yeah. So that would be under the Abrahamic covenant, or yeah. The Davidic one. Uh, I would say the Davidic covenant is a, just an extension of the Abrahamic one, that, right. that it's moving into a different, so different season. I personally, I don't think, I don't know, I'm just yeah, yeah, so I don't think the covenants are unconditional in the sense of. In the Old Testament, God saves them through grace from Egypt via the Exodus, but then he calls them to obedience. And if they disobey, there's, there's curses, which eventually we see as exile. We are saved through the blood of Jesus and his death and resurrection, and we're called to obedience. There's a sense in which there's a conditionality to that. We're, we're called to obey Jesus, and uh, I'm not going to go down the line of, does that mean we lose our salvation or not if we disobey? You, it affects your relationship with God, though. When, when we disobey, we feel the relational tension between us and God. And Scripture talks about us grieving the Spirit. And I'm, I'm kind of like, for me, that, that still seems to be, there's a, a conditionality of a blessing from God and, and richness in my walk with him if I obey. And if I disobey, I can't suddenly also expect that I'll suddenly have loads of richness and uh, life in my walk with God if I'm, if I'm di- disobeying and walking away from it. It doesn't mean I'm not fundamentally still within a covenant. I'm not acting out my part at all, though. 
and there are, there are curses, uh, maybe not curses is the wrong word, but there are consequences that come with that. That would be how I'd read it. So I would, personally, I would say there's much more continuity between the Old Testament covenants of, of grace and obedience and our covenant of grace and obedience. But there, there is a difference in what Christ has done. Is that an okay answer? Yeah, it's like, there's covenant and kingdom in 20 seconds. Yes. I was going to say to you, your view of David's kingship, um, I would view as quite negative. You yeah. said it's pessimistic. Yeah, yeah. I think I agree with you. I don't agree with you. Yeah, yeah. But I think, and why is that? Are you, I'm wondering why your, your view of that kingship is different from my understanding yeah, and I think it's something to do with how David's kingship is going to be painted later on. So we see this in Chronicles and we see this in the New Testament. We're awaiting the Davidic king, i.e. the king that comes after David, who will, who will basically do what David didn't do fully. So we're still waiting for the, the obedient king who will trust Yahweh and follow him and not sleep with Bathsheba and not lose relationship with his sons and not lead the... It, the nation into into disunity we're still waiting for that king and so when when jesus comes along and you see people say son of david it, they're not saying we really wish we had david back they're saying we're longing for the davidic king that we were promised from the line of david and so a, a lot of the time the davidic kingship is viewed positively but i i, I think what i'm what would I, what i would want to draw is the person of david Post Bathsheba is, is just not a good kingship. And pre Bathsheba, much better than Saul, and uh, you could argue potentially a good king, but post that, I'm, I'm like, that, that's not a good king. If that's what your king is doing, it's not a good situation, especially when you compare it to the life of Jesus. And you go, Jesus is the true messianic Davidic king. When I compare David to him, I'm like, David, David doesn't compare. So that's probably why I'm reading it with a more pessimistic lens. I don't want to be totally down on the guy. I still think he does some good stuff. But, um, but I think a, a lot of the, the painting of the Davidic kingship later on is not actually painting David. It's painting the idea of David in a good light. Come back to me after we've done Chronicles because you'll see a little bit of that when we do, do that. Any other questions on Samuel? Yeah, he was, for sure, at one point. (laughs) David's a timeline, isn't he? So he is a man after God's own heart, but not when he sleeps with Bathsheba. No, no, I understand that. I mean, some of his psalms are... uh, Oh, yeah. Is it because he he genuinely repented? Yeah. He he learnt from his... Yes, and I think so, and I think... All the way through, you see a picture of a man who, who, does, who does long for Yahweh. And even in his disobedience, he longs for Yahweh because he comes back and he repents. And I'm not doubting his devotional life, but I am doubting his public leadership. So post Bathsheba, I think devotionally, he's like, oh man, Yahweh, I love you so much. I want to serve you. But the consequences of his actions mean he cannot be a good king. Does that make sense? You, don't, you do not have to read David as I read him. I uh, share a name with him, so there's a, an affinity I have with him a little bit. But, but I want to read the human element into him as much as I can. And my, uh, most of what I've heard about David would be that he's a man after God's own heart and we want to be like David. 
And I'm like, I want to be like David up to a point. I don't want to follow him down the, the Bathsheba road. And I think, I think it's okay to, to critique David. Maybe I'm too harsh on him. I, I apologize as he's in Abraham's bosom. Okay, let's, let's move on into Kings. We can have some more questions later. Really good questions, though. Um, so I've given you the map and the, the kingdoms advancing. What we see in Kings is uh, the, the first 10 chapters, the kingdom is established, the kingdom is united, but then after that, the kingdom is divided into two. There is a, a schism in the heart of, of God's people. Uh, and so a bird's eye view of Kings would be we... Um, and we pick up David's story, uh, d- the story of David's son Solomon becoming king. There's a golden age for Israel, but it doesn't last. Civil war breaks out. The 12 tribes are split, 10 to the north, 10 to the south. And we see a gradual decline of both. The, the 10 uh, northern tribes decline quite quickly. They act wickedly. They disobey Yahweh, and they're eventually routed by the Assyrians. And the two southern tribes do the same things, but they just do it slightly slower. And then they get routed by the Babylonians. So an overview would be... Chapters 1 to 11, Solomon's reign. 12 to 16 is, is the rebellion and the division of the kingdom. Uh, and we see the early history of Israel and Judah. So Israel will now, on, from that point on, refer to the 10 northern tribes, Judah to the two southern tribes. Question? Or are you just... <laughs> There's a guy at the back just like this. And I was like, it looks like a question, but it's not. Uh, and then 117 to 210, uh, you see the two kingdoms and you see the roles of Elijah and Elisha, the, the prophets, uh, to the northern kingdoms. Two, two kings, 11 and 17, the last years of Israel and 18 to 25, the last years of Judah. Key themes of kings would be Yahweh's uniqueness and sovereignty. He alone is glorious. He's the great king. Allegiance is due to him alone, but he's not worshipped as the one and only king. He's worshipped of one amongst other kings by the people. We ultimately see the failure of the monarchy. The desire for a king ultimately proves to have been a disastrous choice for God's people, and they end up in exile, in judgment, at the brunt of violent attacks and oppression. Uh, More than this, the kings fail to keep the people faithful to Yahweh. The whole nation turns to idolatry and evil and they fall into sin. And again, we see the prophetic voice is amplified again in Kings. Uh, Kings covers a huge time period, uh, but the narrator is quite selective on who he focuses on. And focus is given to quite a few kings, and then other kings are passed over quite briefly with basically a comment on, were they good, were they bad? Um, The story starts with uncertainty again. Who's going to succeed David? We see uh, Adonijah, a son of David, sets himself up as a king and gains some weak support, and it's only when David... uh, and still Solomon is king that the nation is united behind him. And the start of 2 Samuel is repeated at the beginning of Kings. There's, there's two kings, there's an uncertainty, and then one king is established. Um, uh, and succession uh, takes place, but, it, but it's messy and it's cruel. And what you see is the, the Israelites have learned how to be politicians, They've learned how to backstab, and that was not the results we were hoping for from David's kingship. And then in 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon becomes king. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, highlights what Solomon's reign is going to be marked by. And this comes back to your point, Tim. Uh, Implicitly, this is wrong, but explicitly it's not stated as wrong. But it will come, we'll see at the end of Kings, these are the reasons that uh, the people of God fall into 
fall into God's judgment. Uh, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Bad. He shouldn't do that. Married his daughter. Bad. Shouldn't do that. He brought her to the city of David where he finished building his palace. Questionable. And the temple of God. Good. And the wall around Jerusalem. 50-50. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places. Bad. Because the temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord. Good. By walking according to the instructions given him by his father, David. Mm, Questionable. Because his father David's instructions are a bit dodge. Um, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. Bad. And almost that last one, he loved the Lord by doing as his father told him to do, but he still did all this other idolatrous stuff. That, that's a fairly good picture of Solomon's kingship. And, and to be fair, coming back to you, what's your name, sorry? Uh, Neil. Neil. Coming back to Neil's point, uh, I want to say part of the reason I'm pessimistic is uh, because I think this just reflects us. That line could be us. All the time. Like, I love God and I obey his laws, except when I'm idolatrous and I obey other idols. Like, that, that's my life as a disciple. I'm increasingly wanting to love Yahweh and obey him and him alone, but I still bow down to the gods of sex, money, and power, as, as, as kind of we'll see it, the, the, classic, the, the classic sins of uh, the kings of Israel. Um, and these verses give a brief summary of what Solomon's going to do. He's going to marry a lot of foreign women. He's going to undertake huge building constructions. The lo- his loyalty to Yahweh is under question. The people's loyalty to Yahweh is under question. It's, it's not a great start. But in chapter 3, we see that Yahweh, uh, sorry, Solomon asks Yahweh for wisdom. It's a good choice, an obedient choice. And because of this, Yahweh adds to Solomon material prosperity as well. Uh, the wisdom is immediately put to the test with this baby that's brought, and he has to decide who the real mother is, and he judges wisely. And the people are finally like, this, this guy, this guy might just do the job. This guy might be the king that we've been hoping for. And Israel initially flourishes under Solomon. There are, um, they are numerous and they're content and they're in the land and the nations start coming to Israel to listen to Solomon's wisdom, the wisdom of God. Israel is starting to be a light to the nations at this point. In light of all this, chapters 5 through 9 and the construction of the temple of God seems like a high point of Israel's story so far. God is finally going to have a quote-unquote permanent home amidst his people a building a sense of Yahweh's presence being a, a permanent presence he's been in a box in the ark he's been in a tent and now he's upgraded to a hotel he's upgraded to the temple and the ark is brought into the temple and the presence of God the presence of Yahweh fills the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8 Yahweh finally dwells with his people in the land and his people are numerous and the kingdom has extended and people are coming to inquire of the Lord interestingly Solomon then prays to Yahweh and asks Yahweh to forgive the Israelites when they sin he knows they're going to sin when they break the covenant, he says, when we mess it up, please forgive us. He seems to know that Israel will not remain obedient. He did ask for wisdom after all. And I feel like this is a wise thing to pray. Solomon instructs the people to be obedient to Yahweh and they give their assent and they're rejoicing at what Yahweh has done. But again, the tone is a fragile tone. In chapter nine, Yahweh lays before Solomon the conditions of the covenant 
If you obey me, I will be with you and I will bless you and I will keep watch over you. If you disobey me, I will cut you off from the land. I will reject this temple and it will be torn down. So at this high point of God's presence coming, there's this reminder, if I'm coming and my holy presence is dwelling here, I call you to obedience. And if you disobey, there will be consequences and there will be judgment. And as you read it, because you kind of know where this story is going, you're reading it going, ah, I feel like it's going to go bad again. I feel like the people are going to disobey again. And we see uh, very quickly that the answer is they are. The end of chapter 9, Solomon builds up towns and cities, but he builds them up using slave labor from the people who Israel had failed to drive out from the land. So he's building towns and cities, signs of prosperity, with a sign that Israel never fully took the land as they were meant to. There is a, a mixed testimony here of, of God, uh, a mixed testimony of, of God's people and what they're doing in the land. Uh, you get the visit of the Queen of Sheba in chapter 10. It's a high point. She praises Yahweh for the wisdom and the blessing that he has given Solomon. She praises the amount of wealth Solomon has. And the second half of chapter 10 raises some big questions for us. And there's verses 21 and 22, I just think, are, are amusing. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. And all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. It was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. It's like, you know, the person who gets 5Ps, 10Ps, 20Ps, 50Ps and just chucks them away. It's like, I don't, I don't need that. I'm just going to keep the pound coin. Solomon has so much wealth, something that is precious and valuable like silver. He just chucks it away. Should Solomon have that much wealth? Should he have amassed as much wealth as he has? And then in verse 26, we also see he's amassed chariots, explicitly forbidden in Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy 17, which predicted the people would want a king. And it says, the king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Solomon's like, tick, tick, tick. Broke it, broke it, broke it. So your question, Tim, we're men to have Deuteronomy 17 in our minds and be like, he should not be doing this. This is not the way of a faithful king. Um, where is his first wife from? Egypt. And where does he, what does he then get? He gets chariots. Where do the people of God know you get chariots from? Egypt, because they were chased by the chariots out of Egypt. Solomon has fallen prey to money, sex, and power. In chapter 11, he's married many foreign women, and his wives lead him astray to false worship. Those three temptations, money, sex, and power, you can preach those in any time, any place, any culture. You'll get some resonance because they're, they're three, the three weaknesses of humanity, money, sex, and power, it's what we fall prey to time and time again. And Yahweh pronounces judgment on Solomon and on the people, and it's terrible. The kingdom is going to be torn from Solomon, and the kingdom itself is going to be torn into two. Rivals rise up and they challenge Solomon. And in chapter 11, the prophet Ahijah takes the cloak of Jeroboam, one of Solomon's servants, who's going to rebel against him, and he tears it into 12 pieces. And he gives him 10 of them. And he says, you're going to take 10 tribes, and two of them are going to remain uh, with Solomon. 
This is, this is Yahweh's people, his children, his bride. And because of their disobedience, he cannot allow them to just keep disobeying and disobeying and disobeying. He has to come and say, this is, this is not the way it was meant to be. This is not the way you are to respond as my people. And in, in your disobedience, you'll be judged. There will be foreign nations who are going to come and they're going to take them into exile. I feel like this has gone off. Is it still going? The microphone. I did hit it in passion. I'll just, I'll just talk a bit louder and you let me know when it's come back on. Um, what we see is uh, Israel follows... Uh, uh, you see uh, Rehoboam and Jehoboam, really unhelpful. It, if they were called like Carl and Kevin be better or Derek and Samuel just anything that's slightly more different than basically two names that are exactly the same bar one letter two letters so you get Jeroboam and Rehoboam um, Jeroboam goes north takes ten tribes with him Rehoboam stays south with the two tribes and what we see is immediately Jeroboam takes these ten tribes north and he makes golden calves and he falsely claims that these led the people out of Egypt and he installs a non-Levitical priesthood and he institutes new alternate festivals he retells the story of the people of God Yahweh didn't save you from Egypt these golden calves did he reinstitutes the temple you don't need the Levites to do the temple system anymore because we don't have the temple because we'd left that behind. So we're going to introduce something new. It's exciting. New vision. New priests. Don't need the old temple. Got a new temple. And oh, those festivals, those old festivals. Now nah, we're going to do something new. We're going to do something different. How quickly they depart from the, the systems and the practices that they have had for, thousand, for maybe a thousand years shows how quick their hearts were to disobey. How quick their hearts were to walk away from Yahweh. And now we have two, two storylines. The ten northern tribes known as Israel centred around Samaria and the two southern tribes known as Judah centred in Jerusalem and with kings from, from David. Two kingdoms, two kings. Three kings, technically, if you include Yahweh. But I said it was the tale of two kings, God and human kings, so let's group all these human kings together. Uh, Yahweh will intervene to show his faithfulness to his covenant to David and to Judah. And it's preserved at points with Judah in the south that it's not uh, Israel in the north. There will not be a permanent propping up of Judah by Yahweh. The disobedience of the kings and the disobedience of the people of God will have real consequences. Now, what you see for the rest of Kings is we're going to be flashing back and forwards between kings in Israel and kings in Judah. And those two terminologies are helpful. When it says a king is in Israel, you're in the north, you're with the ten tribes. When a king is of Judah, you're in the south and you're with the two tribes. And from chapter 15 onwards, the writer uses what's known as the, the regnal or the regnal formula. And these are these little phrases that document the beginning and conclusion of a king's reign. So let me just jump to one. So, for example, uh, 1 Kings 15, in the 18th year of the reign of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, uh, Abijah became king of Judah. He reigned in Jerusalem for three years. His, mother name, his mother's name was Makkah, daughter of uh, Abishalom. And uh, the, this phrase, it, it introduces a king and it will often tell you who they are, where they're reigning, uh, how long they reigned for, the age when they ascended to the throne and the verdict. 
Were they a good king or were they a bad king? And normally the verdict will come at the end and you get phrases like, he did evil like his father or he did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. And the verdict is based on whether the king worships Yahweh alone. It's not that they don't worship, it's whether they worship Yahweh alone, whether they rid Israel of idolatry and whether they'll be faithful to the covenant. And in conclusion, they tell you the death and burial and the succession. Each kingdom has 20 kings. Israel has zero good kings. That's not great. Judah in the south has eight Eight out of 40 kings are deemed obedient to the covenant and worshipping Yahweh alone. That's a fairly damning statement on the uh, leadership of God's people. Imagine you had 40 small group leaders and eight of them followed Jesus and 32 of them didn't. You would have a problem in your small group system. And the narrator is going to weave these two stories together for the rest of Kings to show how the fate of the people of God are now not separate. They are still tied together even as they are in two kingdoms. They're not completely divorced from one another. The narrator still views this as one people, even one people as they're rent apart. And the next section from Kings 1 Kings 17 to 2 Kings 10 is the period of Elijah and Elisha, the two prophets who go to the northern kingdoms. And their story is a story of trying to call the northern kingdoms back to true worship of Yahweh. And so you get the great story with Elijah of, of Yahweh versus Baal. And who, who's going to win? So they, they go up onto the mountain and Elijah says, right, we're going to get two sacrifices and we're basically going to have a, a God off uh, of who's going to do the best job of getting rid of these sacrifices. And you, you kind of have this sad but hilarious scene with the, the prophets of Baal uh, are trying to get their God to come down and burn up the sacrifices and they're, they're shouting and Elijah's like, shout louder, maybe Baal's sleeping. And he's doing like a bit smack talk basically, to these prophets, and, and nothing happens. And then Elijah goes, oh, nothing happened. Fetch, fetch me some water, chucks it, chucks it on this, this huge sacrifice, and then he says, oh, just, just put water around the, around the trench, around the sacrifice as well. Just make sure it's really, really wet. And then he just goes, Yahweh. And it's this story that, sh- that is meant to show to the people of God, look, look how supreme Yahweh is to this, this nothing idol of Baal. But it doesn't work. It's an amazing story, but it fundamentally doesn't work. It doesn't bring the people back to obedience. And in the time of Elijah and Elisha, you get, you get miracle after miracle after miracle. You get life being returned to dead bodies. You get provision being made where there is, where there is famine. You get uh, things like the, the oil lasting for longer and, and food being given where there is no food in the hope that Israel will see this as a sign of Yahweh still blessing and still providing But you get the distinct impression that time is running out for these 10 northern tribes. You get to a point where there's a king called Jehu. And uh, he conducts a mutiny in the north and he kills all of Ahab's family. Ahab is is the the king of Israel who instituted (coughs) idolatrous worship. And Jehu comes along and says, I'm going to kill Ahab. I'm going to kill his family. I'm going to get rid of this idolatrous line. And you think, okay, not the best technique in the world, but at least you're trying to get rid of the idolatry. 
But what then you see is the violence is unrestrained. The violence gets out of control and the kingship in Israel basically passes from king to king in increasingly violent ways. It's murder, it's coups. That's the way to become a king in the northern tribes. And in chapter 15, the Assyrians emerge in the background and they come and and they're bought off for a little bit. They're given some money and they, they go away, but then they come back and they start taking different bits of land and then they, they go away again and then they come back in force in 2 Kings 17 and they, they march on Samaria. They march on the capital of the 10 northern tribes and they lay siege to it for three years. The, the depravity that you get to when a city is, is in siege... Is, is horrendous. The state that the people would have got to after three years of not being able to have food and water coming in and out of the city would have been, uh, would have been like hell on earth until finally the Assyrians take the city and they take the Israelites into captivity. And in 2 Kings 17, the downfall is said to be because of the people's sin. They worshipped other gods. They followed the practice of other nations that the Lord had driven out before them. They followed the practice the kings of Israel introduced, idolatrous practices. They rejected God's decrees and the covenant he had made with them. And their removal by the Assyrians was a result of their sin. Yahweh's judgment on them. So in conclusion to your question, Tim, this is when Yahweh comes and goes, you did it wrong all along. And this is the consequence of your actions. 2 Kings 18 to 25 is the story of the lone kingdom of Judah. And they hear or hear the news that their their former brothers, sisters, family members, allies of Israel have been swept away by the Assyrians. And they are the only two tribes left. And what we see is that the final kings of Judah are a real mixed bag. Chapters 18 through 20 tell us of Hezekiah, who's a good king and a faithful king. He trusts God when uh, Assyria comes to the borders of Judah and Yahweh wins an unassailable battle for Judah. So when you have these huge nations emerge, it is not a guarantee that they will defeat the nation of Israel. And there is a, uh, an opportunity for Yahweh to display his, tre- his strength if the people trust him, which is what Hezekiah does. But in chapter 20, we see some envoys from a new place arrive, envoys from Babylon. And Hezekiah, probably as a trusting guy, brings them in and he says, why don't you check out all the wealth that we've got? And he takes them around and he says, look at all this gold and all of this and all of that. And the Babylonians are like, mm, yes, very good, very good. OK, bye. OK, see you later. We, no, we won't be back. We won't be back to steal everything that you've just shown us. And after Hezekiah, a a good king, a faithful king, maybe made a slip up inviting the Babylonians in to view their wealth. After him comes the king Manasseh. And he is the worst king by far to the extent that he institutes child sacrifice into the nation of Israel, to the people of Judah. Uh, Chapter 1, 10 to 15. The Lord said through his servants, the prophets, 
Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin and uh, with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I am going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Yahweh is saying, you were meant to obey so my glory and my fame would go to the nations of the earth. Your disobedience is what has been heard by the nations of the earth. I will now bring destruction so that the peoples of the earth will still know that Yahweh is a holy God who does not uh, condone disobedient action, who does not condone idolatry. Verse 13, I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria and the plumb line against the house of Ahab. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish wiping it and turning it upside down. I'll forsake the remnant of my inheritance and give them into the hands of my enemies. They will be looted and plundered by all their enemies. They have done evil in my eyes and aroused my anger from the day their ancestors came out of Egypt until this day. Yahweh looks at the history from the people when they left Egypt and they were like, why did we come out of Egypt? Were there not graves good enough in Egypt for you to bury us in Yahweh? To the time at the end of Kings where Manasseh is like, kill your children in worship to these idols. Yahweh looks at this period of history and he says, through the whole thing has been this strain of disobedience and idolatry. And my purpose has always been to bless a people who would be a blessing through their obedience. And you have not done that. And so now judgment will come and you will go into exile because this cannot be the way that that my holiness goes out across the face of the earth. Even even the good king Josiah cannot halt this decline. Josiah discovers the lost role of of a scroll of the law and he seeks reform. It's almost like this sign of what you were meant to follow, how you were meant to show your obedience to me, you've ignored it until you find it and you're cut to the heart and you try and obey it, but it's too late. You're too, you're too far gone. Which is shown by the last king of Judah, Zedekiah, who did evil again in the eyes of the Lord. And Zedekiah watches as the armies of Babylon come back to claim what Hezekiah showed them. They besiege Jerusalem. They kill the sons of the king so that the lineage of the king is done and the people are deported into Babylon. The temple is burnt down and Jerusalem is sacked. And the question is, is this the end? Is this this where the Bible ends? Is this the end of the story of God's people? And then you flash forward in the final paragraph of Kings and it gives us this strange story, but it gives us hope. We flash forward 40 years into the future into exile and we see Jehoiakim who would have been king in Jerusalem he's a king from David's line he's released from prison by the king of Babylon and he's allowed to eat from the royal table it's this bizarre story that comes after the bloodshed and the carrying into exile 40 years into the future there's this guy and the king says "You, you come and eat at my table for the rest of your life it's a glimmer of hope that this Davidic line is still blessed by Yahweh. This Davidic line still has hope for the people of God. Even in the midst of exile, even in the midst of judgment, Yahweh has not forgotten his people and not forgotten his covenant with them. And after 70 years in exile, 
a remnant does make a return. They do return to Jerusalem. A temple is rebuilt and there is a need for a new story to be told. A story to unite the people once again and give them hope. And that is the story of Chronicles. Any question on Kings? Yeah. How do you reconcile Solomon's gifting of wisdom with his inherently unwise behaviour at uh, how do you reconcile the wisdom given to Solomon and his unwise behaviour? Um, I would say Solomon has a choice whether he exercises the wisdom of Yahweh or not. And he does that in chapter 3. And when the baby's brought, and like, which one's the mother, he exercises the wisdom of Yahweh. I think at other points he, he ignores it, or he puts it on hold, or he says, actually, I prefer to marry 600 women and 1,000 concubines. And I, I know it's wrong, but I want to do it anyway. I, do, and I, do, I, th- I just think that's how we act. We, we get given things from God, and we get given wisdom from God. We know the wisdom of God, but we disobey, and we turn away from it. I, I just think, again, it emphasizes the human nature of Solomon, would be my reading. We are, we're going to plough on into the book of Chronicles. Um, we're not going to spend as much time in the book of Chronicles as we did Samuel and Kings. One of the main reasons for that is because Chronicles is, is retelling the story from Genesis through to the end of two kings. And so there's a lot of material that's similar and there's some material that's different. Uh, Chronicles is a summary of the whole of the Old Testament so you've got to ask, why is, it, why is it there? Is it just kind of like, a, we've, we've had this big story, so let's just put it into two books, or one book originally, and just make it nice and neat and hand it out. It's not the reason. The, the reason why Chronicles is written is because 200 years after the remnant have returned, and they're back in the land, and they've, they've rebuilt the second temple, and they've rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, they need a story the people of God need a story for, for what the future holds and what the past has, has meant for them. This is a people who have gone through exile. Their, their culture has come under, attack. It's been, come under attack. It's been stripped away. And so the writers of Chronicles are wanting to recast the story to the people afresh. They want to remind the people of what the story of Yahweh and his people has always been and always will be. Now, Chronicles is one of those books where if you come to it in your morning devotional times, it, it can feel a bit impenetrable and it can feel like there's not much there to go on to kind of inspire you for the rest of your day. So hopefully by unpacking the, the structure of it and the theme of it a little bit, it will, it will make some more sense. Um, I uh, have a slightly controversial view that I, I wouldn't read Chronicles in a morning devotional time. I would study Chronicles. I would want to know Chronicles' place in the story. If the Spirit leads me to read something in Chronicles, I'll go there. I probably wouldn't go to it in a morning devotional. I, I don't think that uh, it, it is going to speak to me and equip me in the same way as other parts of Scripture would do. And partly that's because of what Chronicles is trying to do and some of the best ways of understanding Chronicles is taking it as a whole chunk, taking it as a whole book and trying to, trying to read it as a whole book. And so I would, I would really thoroughly recommend with each of these six books or three books originally that you sit down and try and read them through. A great practice to get into is, is sit down 
for a few hours and read the book out loud. Because that gets you into the flow. It, it, the patterns jump out more when you're reading the whole flow. When it's chapter by chapter, it, you, can, you can miss uh, what's going on, especially in Kings where you're flipping back between different, different kingdoms. I really would read it all the way through. But if you're going to do that, here's a three-part structure for the book of Chronicles that would help you. Chapter 1, verse 1, through to 9, verse 44, is basically the story or documenting Israel, Adam, to the restoration from Babylon, the story of the people of God from Genesis 2 right through to the end of the histories. And it's a lot of genealogies. Uh, Chronicles 10, 1 Chronicles 10 through to 2 Chronicles 9 is the reigns of David and Solomon retold. And then 2 Chronicles 10 through to the end of 36 is the reign of the other kings, uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, retold to the restoration after uh, exile from Babylon. Now, if you try and get yourself in the mindset of being a, um, a, a part of the people of God who've returned from exile, you've returned to a land which has been, been sacked, uh, the city's torn down, the temple's gone, and over, over time, you rebuild the walls. You rebuild the temple, but as you look at the temple, you know the story of how the, for, the first temple looked, and you look upon the second temple, and the people weep because it's nowhere near as glorious and as splendid as the first temple was. And you're sat there, and you're asking, what, where are we going now? The temple's not as good. We've, we've lost so many people along the way. What, what story are we, are we living in? And the writer of Chronicles is helping people to look back to the past and go, what can we learn from the past? But to keep looking forward, where are we going as the people of God? And so the narrator of Chronicles, he feels or she feels very content to take the story from the past and twist it and change it and shape it to retell a story to these people who have come out of exile. They feel a sense of artistic license to alter the accounts in order to put forward a new story and they're going to put forward two hopes, a hope of a messianic king, a hope of a Davidic king And the second thing, the hope of a temple functioning as the temple was always meant to function. And so that's where we see Chronicles is going to go. The first nine chapters of Chronicles is genealogies. As I said, it's not the most entertaining read. Um, But the main function of the genealogies is to show to this remnant people, you're the continuity of the people of God right from the beginning from Adam. And so the genealogy uh, starts... Or Chronicles starts, if you just turn to Chronicles, Chronicles chapter 1. If you were just reading it and you didn't have the kind of the introductory historical records from Adam to Abraham section, you open Chronicles and it goes, Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, and you're just like, whoa, whoa, what, what, what's happening? If somebody was reading this to you, you're jumping straight into name, 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 name. And as each name comes up, there's a story that's kind of coming up in the back of your mind of what's going on. But it, but the, it begins, Adam, Seth. And so you're sat there going, that's wrong. What should it say? Adam Cain or Adam Abel? It doesn't. It says Adam, Seth. So instantly you're in a story, but it's a selective story. It's telling you a story of 
a lineage, a lineage, sorry, from Adam through to who you are now as the people of God. But it's not going to give you the history of the whole of Israel, of everybody. It's giving you a particular history. It's showing that the people that God has always been with has come right through to who you are now. They are, the, the author is tracking the line of faithfulness, as it were, and the line of the messianic king. So the author is going from Adam, he'll go through all the way to David, and then he goes through to the people. And he's trying to convey to them a sense of God's story has been going on a long time, and it's continuing with who you are now. You also see in the genealogies that there is an emphasis on the Levitical priesthood. There's a, a section where it talks about the Levitical priests and their lineage. And again, it takes you through to where they are now. And it says, we're still waiting for the king and the Levitical priests, the priests who were meant to serve in the temple, they're still amongst us. So we can, uh, we can reinstitute temple worship as it was always meant to be. We can obey Yahweh in worship as we were always meant to do so. So in chapter 9, we land with a community that was taken into exile that's now resettled in the land. And the, the writer is writing to a nervous, battered people who've lost much of their identity and they're tracing the story for them of their past through to their present. And he's saying, we, we remain the faithful people of Yahweh. We remain the people waiting for this Davidic king and we remain the people who can worship Yahweh correctly through the Levitical priesthood, even if the temple doesn't look as good as it used to look and even if the presence of God has departed from the temple, which we'll look at a little bit later. This is still the story of the people of Yahweh. And in 1 Chronicles 10 through to 2 Chronicles 9, it retells the story of David and Solomon. The, the story of Saul is kind of briefly touched on at the beginning, but hardly gets a mention. And then you get the narration of David, and the narration of David is highly selective. The writer is, is painting a picture of David's kingship, not because the people were unaware that David's kingship had some problems, but he's painting a picture of this is how the Davidic kingship was meant to look. So the negative stories of David have gone. So there's no mention of David sleeping with Bathsheba or the killing of Uriah. Um, the writer selects parts of Samuel and places them in different orders to create a picture of a much more united Israel and an Israel in a strong relationship with God. So as you're reading through some bits of Chronicles, you're like, hang on, I, I, don't, I don't think this is how it happened. And you can go to Samuel and Kings and be like, it isn't how it happened. And everybody hearing it knows that's not how it happened. They're not unaware. The writer is saying, this is how it should have happened, guys. And this is, this is how we're going to live from now on. David uh, is attributed with getting a lot of things ready for the temple, which is not the same as what happens in Samuel and Kings. And the writer is, is trying to portray the Davidic king was meant to be the one who got things ready for the temple. He was meant to be the one who ordered worship of Yahweh correctly. But it didn't happen with the actual person of David, but with the kind of the type or the idea of this Davidic kingship. That's what should have happened. The author is painting a picture of the Messiah, not a biography of the failed king. 
And then in chapters 23 and 27, this details the Levites operating in the temple system. But again, the details are quite different from Samuel and 1 Kings. The purpose, again, is to help this remnant community return to how things were supposed to be, not how they actually ended up being. So here's a, here's a quote. The major difference from the Samuel to Kings account of the transition from David to Solomon is its strong focus on the temple. Everything else is subordinated to this. We hear nothing of the tussle between David's sons over the succession, nor of the moral weakness of David, nor of Solomon's own brutal suppression of his enemies. Why not? That would not help the remnant community to rebuild. What do the people of God need at the heart of their community? The temple system. It needs to function correctly, so that's what the writer's going to paint. And at the beginning of Second Chronicles, we hear of Solomon building the temple, but there again, there are omissions. We don't hear of his foreign, foreign wives. We don't hear of him turning to false gods. All the time and the effort he put into building his own palace alongside the temple. We have this picture painted of the temple was built and it was wonderful and it was glorious and its functions were proper. And that's what we're going to try and reestablish Maybe the most famous verse from Chronicles that, that I've heard at many a revival meeting. Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. In the context of what the author is doing in the rewrite of history, this is a message of such hope to a people who look around and think that everything is gone and dead and ended. He's saying, if we return to how we were always meant to obey Yahweh, if we humble ourselves, if we pray, if we worship correctly, Yahweh, Yahweh will show himself to be faithful to his covenant and to us one more. There's still hope that Yahweh's promises will come to completion and the blessing will return to Israel. And the chronicler has described three kings, Saul very briefly, David and Solomon more extendedly. And they're kind of the kings of apostasy, the one who turns away from God, the king of war in David and the king of peace in Solomon. And the kings who follow in Second Chronicles 10 through to the end of 36 are judged in one of those kind of three types. They either turn from God or they're a king of war or they're a king of peace. And throughout this section, the author is wanting people to see that the obedience of the king and the obedience of Yahweh, oh, sorry, the obedience of the king and the people to Yahweh have direct consequences for how things are going to go with the people. The message is our obedience really matters, guys. We've got this chance. We're the remnant who's returned. We're Yahweh's faithful people. We still have a temple. We've still got the Levitical priesthoods. If we humble ourselves, if we pray, if we obey, Yahweh will still be faithful to us. And the end of Chronicles differs to the end of Kings. Instead of focusing on Jehoiakim in exile, the author takes us further through the exile and focuses on the king of Persia. If you just quickly go to the end of Second Chronicles 36... It says that the king of Persia is moved by the Lord to release the people back to the land, to build a temple for Yahweh to be with his people once more. And it says, if you've got an NIV, it will probably say something like this in verse 23. This is what, king, uh, uh, what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up. And that's where the Hebrew stops. The Hebrew doesn't have the next section, which in my Bible says, and may the Lord their God be with them. It doesn't have that. It ends mid-sentence. It ends with this phrase, may the people go up. 
it ends with a, almost a, an, un, uh, an unfinished ending, an exhortation to people. May they go up to the temple and be with God and God with them. It's, it's a little bit like the end of Acts Acts 28, it just kind of ends mid-story, but there's this kind of impetus that the story of Acts continues. Chronicles just ends with, so they may go up. There's, a, there's not a full stop because the people of God don't have a full stop on them. There is still hope that if they return to God, then God will be with them and be with their people. And then if you're reading through your Bibles kind of uh, chronologically, at this kind of dot, 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 you get this period of silence, this intertestimonial period where we're just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting until we get to the beginning of the New Testament, the arrival of Jesus. And if you go to, let's go to Mark chapter 1, verse 14. In light of how bad things have been, and in light of that silence... Then you get to Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And then Jesus in, one, in Mark 1, 15, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The message he picks up is the same message from Chronicles. Turn, turn back to Yahweh, trust Yahweh, believe the good news, and the same kind of herald that's coming before Jesus. God is coming. He's returning to his people. He's going to return and be with his people once more. And what does he require? He requires obedience, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his obedient people. And that would be the link into the New Testament So that was an overview from Samuel to Chronicles. It's the time of the kings. A question of obedience is constantly raised. There's a longing for a messianic king which never finds its home fully until the time of Jesus. And a a desire and a longing for appropriate true worship of Yahweh around the temple system, which again finds its fulfillment in Christ. And we're meant to end our reading with, with a longing and a hunger for God to return and bring order, bring obedience bring correct worship. And when we read Christ through that lens, we see he is, he is the people of Israel, faithfully obeying Yahweh, faithfully worshipping Yahweh, returning to Yahweh fully, so that Yahweh's presence may be restored with the whole people of God.